Welcome to the Expression Over Perfection podcast, the show where we talk about creativity, psychology, and what it means to be human. I'm your host, Jesse Sussman, and I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we have an extraordinary show for you, featuring Susan Kolodny. Susan Kolodny is a poet, writer, and a recently retired psychoanalyst and teacher. She's the author of two volumes of poetry called Preserve and After the Firestorm, as well as a book about creative work called The Captive Muse on creativity and its inhibition. The Captive Muse is how I came across Susan's work, and it captivated my attention right away. It's a book about creative work that answers the following questions. Why is creative work so difficult? What helps and what hinders us in doing it? And what makes such work possible? Reading this book was so insightful and thought-provoking for me and my creative process that I wanted to invite Susan on the podcast. We had a wonderful conversation about creative work, getting unstuck, and how the unconscious informs our behavior and, by extension, our creative process. This was an illuminating conversation, and I'm excited to share it with you. So without any further delay, I introduce you to Susan Kolodny. Susan, thanks so much for joining me. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. I'm so excited to chat with you. Um, in the introduction, the listeners heard that you're the author of The Captive Muse on Creativity and Its Inhibition. And when I found your book, one of the things that most stood out to me was that you approached creativity from the perspective of a psychoanalyst and as a poet and writer yourself. So can you tell me in your words, uh, what led you to write The Captive Muse and to approach it from this dual perspective of a psychoanalyst and as an artist yourself? Well, I was doing an MFA in poetry and I had been practicing as a psychotherapist for about 20 years at that point, but wanted to work further on my writing. So I managed to combine the MFA in my practice. And the final requirement for the MFA was to teach a class to the faculty and students. This program had been very important to me and I wanted to give something back. And I knew that I had expertise in an area that others, as far as I knew, didn't. And so I thought I would teach a class on what sometimes makes writing and of course other creative work difficult. And I don't mean that that work should be easy, but there's certain difficulties that I think people can learn about and get on better terms with. And I had um, several places to draw from. I'd previously been a junior college English teacher and had had lots of conversations with students about what was going on with them with writing. I had my clinical experience as a psychoanalytic therapist. I later became an analyst, but wasn't then. And I had my own periods of absolute struggle with writing. So I wrote a paper and gave it as my graduating class. And afterward, one of the faculty members came up and said, Susan, you have a book in that paper. I had a moment of slight panic um, <laughs> and thought about it for a while, for a number of months, and then mentioned that exchange 
to a psychoanalyst friend who read the paper and said, not only do you have a book, you have your outline for your book. It's all right here. So I went ahead and I wrote the book. Fantastic. And what was the moment between the slight panic and because I'm holding the book in my hands right now. So there must have been a lot of decisions and uh, f- soothing of that panic that before you were able to to turn it into something. What happened in the in-between that, especially with regards to you deciding to work with pro- primarily artists and writers in your practice? Well, I think the panic, the slight panic, had to do with a couple of things. What it would mean to me to write a book as someone who was claiming some expertise that made me anxious. And also, um, what was I doing? I had just gotten immersed in writing poetry. I was immersed in private practice. What was going to happen to my poetry in terms of time, energy, if I did this other thing? But I decided to do it. So, and in terms of writing about writers and artists, that was really my interest. The kinds of things that get in the way, seriously get in the way of people doing the work they want to do, the creative work. Wow. And to venture into that feels like it would be so many different unknowns on so many different levels, but to have that confidence is really inspiring, um, especially not knowing what would happen to the poetry. That's, that's, uh, I, I can resonate a lot with that. Um, what, was there a certain point when you decided to primarily only work with writers and artists and, um, the, logistics of doing that seem very difficult to me. Were people keen to see somebody that was uh, offering to specialize in that lens? Well, I, I don't want to give the impression that those are the only people I saw. Okay. They weren't. It's just that as colleagues got to know about my interests, they started sending more such people to me. And some of the people I'd been seeing would mention to an acquaintance that they knew this therapist who specialized or was particularly interested in creative process. So that generated referrals. And I I just want to say that I didn't have the answers until I wrote the book. I had ideas, but as, as you may know, if you're, it sometimes takes the act of writing or probably painting to find out what you know or to find out what you think or feel. So I was motivated for myself too to find out what is it that gets us into so much conflict with these endeavors. Beautiful. And and what were some of those questions um, under the umbrella of that conflict that you were seeking to answer? You mean what makes writing so difficult? Yeah. (laughs) And when I say that, I'm including other art forms. You know, certainly painters go through some of this stuff. I've I've worked with painters. Um, 
people who sculpt, probably people who design. There's a whole range of people to whom this applies. So in terms of what I found out, um, let me put it this way. You and I spoke briefly before. You know how you sit down to do your work and you suddenly decide you really need to get another cup of coffee? Yeah. <laughs> or you've got to check your email. And checking your email can lead to sending a response that requires a response and you can end up online. I mean, we've all found out that it's very easy to be distracted from creative work. Mm. Or to write, let's say, a few really good lines and then decide you, you've just got to go throw the stuff in the washing machine. Distract yourself. And as I studied that and thought about what I'd done, both in my own analysis, which had cured my so-called writer's block, and in my work with patients, was that that kind of distraction or stopping doing the work um, or getting stuck doing the work was very much related to anxiety. Mm. But let me explain that by anxiety, I'm talking about a process that is unconscious most of the time. We may not have the slightest inkling we're anxious. We just know that suddenly you have to get the cup of coffee. Mm. We're turning away from something. And the anxiety, and I, I know people think they know what that means, but not everybody realizes it can happen without your having an inkling. Mm. The anxiety turns out to be a danger signal. It's your mind telling yourself, that's a weird way to put it, your mind telling yourself, but mm -hmm. we do have conflicts and they involve different parts of the mind. Telling yourself you are about to do something dangerous. Now, the idea of what's dangerous the unconscious ideas about what's dangerous tend to come from very early in our lives. And if they are unconscious, we can't really re-examine them. We can't really say, look, for me to take some time to myself and not pay attention to other people isn't really dangerous, is it? Mm -hmm. Or for me to express these particular feelings will not annihilate people. But we came to those conclusions early. They got repressed or buried in the unconscious. And so we're getting a little signal. You're about to get in trouble. And we turn away mm. unless we learn how to handle this stuff. That is so, when I was reading your book and you, you've elaborated on this in the book, that is such an eye opener because before you have that awareness, you're, temptation, I think, is to just assume that you're a creature that is 100% conscious. And that if you put your mind to something, everything exists almost like a car above the hood, but there's an entire mechanism, a highly complex survival mechanism that is taking place that you don't see when the engine is running. You don't have a clue. In fact, a very famous psychoanalyst once said, and I'm I'm not going to paraphrase this well. It's not certainly not as well as he did. But what you see of your own mind is comparable to what you see of the planet Earth 
standing in one spot. <laughs> Talk about humbling. Yeah. There's that much more going on in your mind than you encounter. And when stuff is down there below the surface and being kept there because it might feel dangerous, it's pretty hard to think, well, why am I anxious? If you even know you are. Yeah. And you might not even, uh, even the idea when you're in that fully conscious um, fantasy, uh, what you're saying can even sound like a threat to the to that fantasy. So before you accept that there's that whole other galaxy of your psyche, uh, I could feel the danger signal when you were just talking about that, that we were just talking about the anxiety. Um, so was there a certain way that maybe for some of the patients that you see or, or arriving to your own conclusions of how to accept that there is this ginormous part of your being that you might not have access to, but that you can eventually hopefully gain more agency in unearthing? Yeah, I think, you know, for the book, I interviewed several uh, poets and others who had worked over a long, long period of time. And I asked them how they felt. First, I asked them if they'd ever felt like, I just can't do this, or if we're perpetually distracted or gave up. And they said, yeah, but I learned to have conversations with that voice in my head, the one that says, who do you think you are to do this? Um, if you can't do it perfectly the first time, you're no good. All of these things that we, many of us have heard in our heads, they learned ways of dealing with that. Mm. You know, one person, um, used, uh, Gail Godwin, who's a fiction writer, used the term the watcher at the gate. And that's Freud's expression borrowed from the poet Shelley. And Freud said, this is the, the entity that blocks, you know, makes you forget dreams, makes you unconscious of things, makes you repress things. Mm. A good example of that, I, I had a colleague who went to a demonstration a protest, and on his shoulders, he had his toddler son, and patient saw him there. Um, and the next session, she didn't mention it, so he said, we ran into each other, the, uh, the demonstration, what was that like for you? And she said, well, it was really weird seeing you out of your office, but you know, there was something funny. You had on the strangest hat. <laughs> she had seen him with a child on his shoulders and repressed. Wow. This was a child. She turned it into a hat because for her, it was so upsetting to see her analyst out and about with a child who meant he had this whole life that she wasn't a part of. That is, we, Wow. It makes sense, we, though, at a certain level. Yeah, we do that. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of extreme. But we keep things out of our awareness. And they get expressed with things like, I was talking about the watcher at the gate, which is what Freud said, makes us forget dreams, is sort of the guardian mm. of the unconscious. 
And so some of these writers and artists who have really been able to keep going make friends, this is in my book, with the watcher or give the watcher a name or carry on conversations. Or, you know, when the start, that starts to speak while they're working, they just say, oh, bug off. You know, they, and it's, it's very helpful and it keeps them going. They don't get up and go get the cup of coffee. Or if they do, they're back to work because they know that anxiety is part of creative work and that they have to make friends with it. And that that is so profound because when you, I think when we're younger, there we have a lot of fantasies that we observe and internalize based on cultural conditioning from our parents' conditioning, so many different aspects of that. But particularly when it comes to creative work, like you were saying before, there's a myth sometimes that we all experience, no matter how experienced we are, that it should be easy and that we should be able to sit down and write and have it flow out of us like, you know, um, a Sunday, the ease of a Sunday morning jog, just because that's especially if we identify most strongly as somebody who is creative or as a writer and I'm sitting here and I'm trying to do the thing that I most believe represents my identity as a human being. And yet I'm struggling, but the, the aspects of this that you're talking about can give people um, awareness into the origins of that conflict, because it's not just the, that you sit down to write and you can't write there are so many layers to this conflict. So what, when you're, um, when you're experiencing the watcher or that very inner critical voice that, that you were mentioning, what are some of the tensions that you discovered uh, that were not necessarily the answers that you expected? Where were there different conflicting parts of your anxiety coming from that then you were able to make sense of? Well, and I may have mentioned this to you earlier when we had a conversation. Um, I'll give you an example of it. There's a book called uh, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, which is a very good book. Mm. It, and she gives this exercise called The Morning Pages, M-O-R-N, and suggests that you write for 10 minutes every morning, just not stopping. You do not stop to cross out. You do not stop to revise. You don't stop to reread. You write for 10 minutes. And you do this every day. And I have done that when I was feeling like there was something in the way. And I, I, it occurred to me one day that what I should do is add something to Julia Cameron's exercise, which is to make a note when that voice started in mm. on me. You know, if it started saying, why are you writing that? That's garbage. You know, that's stupid. Why are you bothering? And I just make a note, I, 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 maybe a mark. And then I thought, I'm going to go back and look over when this occurs. What's going on that at these certain moments, I feel like I, I'm just... I shouldn't be doing this. I'm no good. And what I noticed, and you know, I think I told you this, is that whenever the language would start to kind of take off, 
that voice would speak. And it was consistent over weeks. Whenever something started to happen that was interesting in my writing, the free write, the censor would be right there. And so I had to think about what was it about feeling powerful as a writer, about being able to write something that was really alive and you know full of energy that made me think, better stop. And when I could think about that, I was able to feel freer. Mm. And, and what happens in therapy is that as people explore things, they discover certain fantasies. That, and discovering those and thinking about where they come from can help, like the fantasy that if you aren't paying, this is more often, I think, the case with women. Mm. If you're very absorbed in what you're doing. You're not paying attention to other people in your life. Mm. You know, you're paying attention to yourself and what you're doing. If that feels dangerous because of either actual experience or what the person did with experience in, in her own mind, um, then there's going to be a problem. And Danger. she's got, yeah. Yeah. That's right. There's a signal of danger. You are leaving someone out and then fantasies, you're going to be abandoned. You're going to destroy someone. You'll never be loved. You're going to be punished. Mm. So working in therapy or, and later in analysis with people, I would help them to arrive at insights about, oh, that's why I'm scared. And that might have made sense when I was a little kid, but it really doesn't make sense now. And it probably didn't even then, but that's the sense I made of it being a small child. On many unconscious levels, primarily. I mean, it's not like the child in that instance. This this was a profound thing for me to accept is that the child that internalizes that doesn't have much agency over what they internalize. So how can you, right. you know, there's an element of this inner critical voice that is predominantly unconscious as we're describing. And once you are open to that possibility, then it's it, it kind of frees you from throwing the conscious inner criticism at some level on top of it because it wasn't your fault. It was evolution uh, inside of you that has uh, materialized to try to be that guardian as you were describing earlier. Yeah, it's something you did with an experience that makes this other unrelated, really, activity feel dangerous mm. and makes you try to shut down. And, and things happen in development, like, you know, a, a small child, but let's say a two-year-old who's, it can somehow be, you know, <laughs> argumentative. And let's say a kid's doing that, it's very normal developmentally, and let's say his mother gets pregnant and kind of withdraws. Mm. Normal situation, run of the mill. But if the child has the fantasy that mom has withdrawn because she doesn't love him anymore, mm. then he can feel like that arguing is terribly dangerous. Asserting himself was terribly dangerous. And then if he wants to do something creative and it involves assertion, a certain amount of aggression to do creative things, he may become very anxious 
not know he is and pull back from it. So there are hundreds of examples like that. And his mother just might have been sort of withdrawn because she was tired in her pregnancy. But for a small child, that feels like the threatened loss of such an important relationship. Yes. I mean, and when you're describing that, that sounds like, I think the first step, if you're that child, when you're realizing that that's the story that you've reacted to or how you've reacted to it is to say, oh, my mother didn't provide for me in this way. And therefore, um, you know, she, she did something wrong and that led to it. And maybe there's, there's something that she was not able to do, but larger, it's almost this pinball of, of confusion. It wasn't obviously her conscious intent to withdraw in that instance. Yeah. And something important you're saying there, Jesse, is, you know, sometimes people will say, well, I can't, Right, because my parents didn't support me and make me feel valuable. Yeah. Um, that's leaving out the unconscious completely. That's saying one plus one is two, which is fine consciously, but not what goes on deeper in the mind. Mm. And it's saying it's because it's blaming, you know, my parents were, they weren't nice. And we're not talking about extreme examples of, you know, like abuse or neglect. And so they don't get to think about what went on inside of them. And then if trying to write something or paint something that might be getting at something inside is getting at that kind of stuff. Mm. Off they go to the internet or the grocery store or the laundromat or, you know, because of that anxiety. Mm. So blaming parents, well, you know, parents make mistakes and some of them make bad mistakes. It, it, it cops out in a way. It keeps us from thinking, this is what was going on in me that made me feel so bad. And I'm blaming them, and maybe they, you know, weren't perfect. But what's going on in me? What am I afraid of? What am I angry about? And how is it affecting my writing or my painting or whatever? Because if you're just blaming, then that is almost um, invalidating. That's almost saying why the story is what it is without how you can gain more agency and control, as as we've discussed. I mean... That and that is that feels like a more humane way because all the way down, I mean, the layers of unconscious internalization and all of this uh, that we're talking about, it goes back to the beginning. I mean, nobody had, we still don't have all the answers on how the mind works, and everybody has these guardians that are acting in their own best interest whenever they, um, you know, talking about the the influence of the unconscious. But coming back to um, revision, I think that there you write about revision in the book, and one of the examples that you give is a poet laureate uh, who mentions that every time he sits down to write or to edit uh, in in the stage of revision, he says, "Oh no, not me again." <laughs> and I love that. Can you expand on on the revision and that that aspect, maybe as it pertains to the unconscious, as we were describing? Sure. Um, I, the first 
thought I have in response to you is that a few years after my MFA program, I wrote to one of my teachers and I said, I, I've come to love revision. And he mm. said, now you are a writer. Wow. I think that's important because when everybody's work needs revision or whatever you might call it in other fields, repainting or modifying the painting, or even sometimes maybe throwing it out or painting over it. Revision is just part of the deal. But if revision means to the individual, I'm a failure. Mm. My teacher asked me to revise it. It must be terrible. And yet, William Butler Yeats wrote something like 190 drafts of the poem Sailing to Byzantium. Wow. You know, it's a great, great poem, but it took a little work to get there. But if people think that revision is shameful or they can't bear to change what they've written because their investment in it is, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you know the phrase, murder your darlings. I think that was W.H. Auden, and he's talking about how you've got to sometimes throw out what you think is the best line in the thing or the best mm. image because it doesn't fit the rest. Maybe you'll use it in a different painting or poem, but, you know, it's got to go. I mean, if, if those things feel like assaults on our narcissism, meaning our self-esteem, or how how much we value ourselves or feel valued, it's very hard to mm. revive. Also, and this may be what you're referring to that was in the book, I, I gave examples of how parts of our personal style or character, to use you know the, the more analytic word, um, can be sources of some of the best stuff we do, but they can also make it very hard for us to change what we do. Mm. And I, I gave some examples, like people who are what we call obsessional, you know, I guess term is pretty well known, may draw from that aspect of their personal style the best stuff, their themes, you know, the, the uh, way of writing. But if they are rigidly so, it's very hard to change something, mm. you know, you, and I think I gave examples of what kinds of marginal notes a writing teacher might write on a paper written by someone who is very obsessional, like, well, you've got all of these details. Maybe you should pare them down a little bit so they're more effective. Mm. Or you know, you're giving us choices in every sentence. You're the writer. Pick something. Because the person is trying to cover all bases and, and also control a lot of what's inside. So that's part of our character or our style. And it can either help us out or be what makes it hard to revise. And for, I mean, that resonates on so many levels. Um, for me, especially on the level of there would often be a great struggle to get started in my creative work, even though it's because of a lot of the unconscious things that we were discussing before I had any inkling of what some of the stories were. Uh, but And then so I'd make something 
I'm talking about music specifically at that time. And then it would actually turn into something after I had got, you know, eclipsed that battle with the anxiety and triumphed over it a little bit to make something. But then I would make it and I would spend enough time on it that it's maybe 25% done. But at that point, I love it so much that I can't change it because I would have to, like you said, murder my darling in order for it to actually become a full song. But then I would never finish it because it was such a threat because I, I loved it so much that I wouldn't have the patience or it's not even the patience. I Anything that I could do after it reached the point of me loving it just was wrong. And I would be so, it was like a despair level of frustration and, and self-hatred. So I remember there was this one song that I started about eight years ago and that I thought it was going to be the, my masterpiece, the best thing I had ever written, the thing that would carry me from making music in my bedroom by myself to some fantasy of having all of my emotional needs met through doing this one good song. Uh, and I could never finish it because it, the whole process was so overwhelming that I could almost never walk with myself to shatter the illusion of what it needed to be to prove to myself that I could do something. Uh, it's there was, and I would just make a new song and then the same thing would happen over and over again until I went to therapy <laughs> pretty much. Um, so, and you mentioned in the book that revision can often be, a, I'm not sure if you use the phrase like a mirror, but it can be associated with closure and death specifically on an unconscious level. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, sometimes, well, typically people who are having struggles have them in relationship to certain steps along the way or to certain materials. So some people can't start mm. or they can start and before they've gotten very far, they have to stop themselves um, or they have the kind of response that you were describing. It's, it's too precious yeah. to part. And um, it's, I'm, I'm just thinking about this. Can you repeat that last part of your question? Yeah, um, about revision being associated with closure and death oh, yeah. on the unconscious level. Yeah. Some people can't finish. They can write the song, but not the ending. They can mm -hmm. write the story, but not the ending, and so on. And that sometimes happens because of whatever ending or finishing means to them unconsciously. Mm. And it can have different meanings. For example, it can mean that now you have to let this thing go into the world and risk judgment. It can mean um, you aren't going to be able to start something new. So it's terrifying to mm. end it. And there are many other such meanings. And it can mean death. Finishing can unconsciously stand for death. I had someone who read my book tell me that she'd learned something important from it, that she was having trouble finishing things she wrote. And it turned out she'd lost her parents in an accident when she was 18, trying to finish, finishing high school and trying to start college or 17. And she hadn't realized 
that finishing as she was trying to finish high school came to mean for her terrible loss. So she hadn't known that and it it kept interfering. And once she realized it, I think she did some further work on it emotionally and finishing became less frightening because she realized it's just finishing this piece. I can go on and do something else, but she hadn't been able to do that as long as she had that meaning in her unconscious. And that can also happen for people with publishing. You know, you publish and you're no longer in control of the thing in a way. It's out there. People can read it or listen to it and maybe not like it or maybe like it. Neither one can scare us. Yeah. (laughs) So So that's, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, does that answer? Absolutely. Um, And especially if, you're making something, something about art feels like the opportunity in any form of art to have infinite control in a world where you don't have nearly as much. The canvas, it's, it's limited by four corners and you can, you have in your mind the promise of being able to create exactly what's in your imagination, exactly as it unfolds and exactly as you can bring it into the world. So to transition from that stage of hypothetically infinite control, which isn't actually infinite, especially if you have all of these stories, you know, governing part of the process and how you experience it to go from that stage of hypothetical infinite control to absolute exposure no wonder you would want to have some resistance beyond that, right? Because that's going from, I'm, I don't know if I'm reaching here, but secure attachment with your um, mother to then being alone in the grocery store by yourself, wondering where she went. Well, it can stand for that, certainly, and for many other things. The, the, the issue of control is kind of interesting here because we can over control. Mm. And we can over-control out of the kinds of anxieties I was talking about, unconscious anxieties, because letting go of control, who knows what's that, what that is going to reveal? What, who knows what we're going to discover? So, but no control, you know, you get people who will write something and won't revise it and then write something else and won't revise it. And there's just no control. There's no, maybe no structure. So what we need is a balance between, you know, where do we control and where do we relinquish control and allow things to emerge? And I think creativity really does involve a certain amount of releasing control. Not so much that what we put on the page is, you know, word salad, but it it needs that balance. So how do you get to that that point? Because there are so many, as you're talking about it, I'm imagining the ideal balance being allowing yourself in the beginning to um, express as freely as possible while resisting the urge to edit it as you're doing it. It's almost yeah. like allow yourself to dance before you start thinking about doing the choreography for the show and then mm-hmm. allowing yourself to do the revision and then allowing yourself to do the final. So how do you even start to make sense of that balance if you've never had it before? Okay. Um, Robert Hass, the poet, talked once at a conference, and I'm going to apologize 
in advance as he did for mm. the way he phrased it. He talked about there being a boy girl, a boy, yeah, a, a boy spirit and a girl spirit. And he did apologize for the sexism of this. The girl spirit, as he was describing it, was the part of the process that allows you to get the material out of your head onto the page or onto the canvas or onto the sketch. And then what he called the boy spirit shaped it. Mm. Now, I probably wouldn't have chosen those two terms. I'm not sure he would now either. But there is something important about that. And one of my MFA teachers said he's try- he has learned to distinguish between different voices in his head, and we're not talking about hallucinations. Yeah. If when you're starting to write something, there's a voice saying, that's junk, what he says to that voice, get lost. And he keeps letting it come, you know, however freely it can. Later, he will still ignore that voice, but he will listen carefully to the voice that says, that line could be better. Mm. That image isn't clear or doesn't really go with the rest. I think you need to take it out. We have to, and this speaks to um, control and giving up control too. I mean, and and from within being controlled or or being free. Mm. We need to try to figure out if it starts while you're doing that first draft, this voice. Don't listen. Just tell it, bye. <laughs> but, and, and actually, I think doing things like that can help. I think they really can. Um, but then you have to be able to recognize the voice that says, Jesse, you've got to cut that out. It's, it's wonderful, but it doesn't belong here. Put it in your, um, that file that you keep of, Stuff that seems interesting, but you haven't yet found a place for. That is so I, interesting. Yeah. I, I was just going to add that I think being able to d- distinguish between those two things and know when to tell the voice off and, and when you're, it's another voice and it's a helpful voice and it's based on some understanding of craft or some intuition of what you're really trying to do. That's the second one is fine once you get things down. And I've never heard it put like that, but that makes so much sense because all of the voices, especially if we go back to the beginning where we mentioned the feeling, the danger, you can experience what, what I'm gleaning from this is that you can experience one of these voices that is saying what. Is that really what you want to say? That sounds so trite when really that voice is coming from the place of feeling exposed. And so, but it sounds like after um, you get later in the process, you can see that, oh, I just need to change the, the adjective here. And that is the way in which I felt exposed at the very beginning, but it, that exposure manifested as an attack because it didn't know how else to, 
materialize. So that is so, I mean, we can talk about the the origin story of our inner critical voices and how that factors in very importantly, uh, especially as it relates to early development. But this all speaks to something you write in the book too, that says, this is very hard work. Creative work is inevitably extremely hard work, primarily because we are making ourselves so vulnerable to ourselves and in the context often of our nervous system and having experienced so many overwhelming things while losing the conscious awareness of what we've internalized. Mm -hmm. So this is so hard. I mean, it's on a day when maybe there's no other permission we can give ourselves when we're lost in that web of, of critical voices. Um, maybe it's just a sobering reminder sometimes that this is incredibly difficult work that every time you sit down to create, you are making yourself so vulnerable to so many things that are happening that are almost infinitely beyond your conscious comprehension. Right. That's right. I mean, you're making yourself vulnerable to revealing content that you don't even know is there until you do the work. And content you know, we can be terribly afraid it's going to be crummy or offend someone or alienate some mm. or be so exciting that we're going to be envied. I mean, there are all these things we can be afraid of. And so these voices, these watchers at the gate, these there are other ways we could talk about them, but I don't know that we really have time. Mm. Um, they try to stop us to protect us and we just need to find some way to know that and also and i and you're right it helps to know it's hard work mm. an important friendship of mine with a, with another with a poet began at a party where we were talking and uh, at learning she was a poet and i at that point hadn't been written for, hadn't written for years mm. I blurted out in this impassioned way that startled me, why is writing so hard? And she said, it is hard. That was so helpful. Mm. It is hard. It's also wonderful. And what we don't need to have the what's hard be compounded by all these other things that you and I have been talking about. And we will inevitably forget that too. And we can forgive ourselves when we do, because there's uh, maybe a myth of the control that once we have some level of awareness into this, that we can bypass it forever and just get back to painting. <laughs> but no, part of the cycle is remembering, right? That we're always going to uh, forget even some of the most profound things that that makes sense to us. I mean, the creative process in so many ways just feels like a metaphor for everything we experience as human beings. Um, and that really lowering the, the standard of maybe we get into it because it offers so much prospects of the fantasies that you were just describing. Um, but some of the, I don't know if it's similar for you, but for me, some of the most profound things in this process and in this work have been in the unlearning of, of the expectations. That's a big part of it. And also 
I think one of the things that's essential to learn is to love the process more than or before the product. Because mm. if you love the process, that's that was you know what I was saying to my teacher when I said I've learned to love revision. When you, I, I, what I'm trying to say is it doesn't always have to be as hard, although it's not going to be easy. Uh, but I think it's easier if you become intrigued by the creative process. And then, you know, if something isn't working, it doesn't feel like you've ceased to have value as a human being or you're never going to write another thing or paint another thing. It's, oh, okay, something's making this tough. Mm. And I'm going to keep at it and try to see what's going on. And maybe it won't be this poem. But maybe I need to write this poem, even if it's, you know, crummy, in order to get to the next one. That is, you mentioned the holding environment in the book. That mm-hmm. is such a more prominent um, and and humane and, and wonderful way to to kind of hold yourself through the process um, because every, I don't know about you, but for me, for so many years, every piece of art that I ever worked on felt late to its own being finished. And that put so much pressure that it narrowed the tunnel of when I look at this, I just see that it's not done and that I haven't finished it yet. So all I'm doing is applying more force to try to finish it, which makes me as far away from possible as having any conception of the process that you're mentioning. Yeah, that's right. Putting pressure. I mean, sometimes people are doing things with deadlines and, you know, sometimes you have to get something done or turned in as best you can, but we put all these pressures on ourselves and they do not help. Mm. I mean, now, my saying that may not help either because there are reasons we do that and we got to try to figure things out if they're getting in our way. Um, but yeah, the, the the pressure to produce, the idea that this thing I'm doing is going to make my life perfect, um, bring me love and... <laughs> <laughs> you've got... To, it's got to be the process that matters because if this other stuff matters to you too much, I think it really gets in the way. But if you come to love seeing how it unfolds and if you are happy to discover things in yourself this is this is analogous to therapy because as long as people in therapy are trying just to please the therapist or just to prove that they're good patients or just to get out of there as fast as they can with some stamp of approval you know that's not optimal that has to be explored with the therapist you know why is that it rather than trying to find out more about yourself. So it's the same thing with the process and the product in the creative work. I I mean, that's, that's so meaningful because what you're saying also, in in other words, is the art, the artist is more important than the art, even when we think it's the opposite. I mean, the person is more important than what we produce. And maybe it's, there's an aspect of this that is about, your relationship with yourself as you're creating that 
is more significant and eternal than what one artifact of you know, a, a continued period of time that you've worked on and not to discount the meaning and the significance that one piece can have, but maybe in the creative process and a way to get in tune with the process when all you can think about is the product is to realize that art making maybe is, is more about um, how we walk ourselves through all of those different aspects of allowing ourselves to unfold in the um, beginning stages, in the revision stages, and in the polishing stages. Um, it just feels more ethical and, and humane and compassionate um, because there is there can be a much longer scope on the quest of creativity that we undertake that is much more infinite and and representative of growth over maybe 50 years uh, uh, that will make art as opposed to this is one thing that needs to meet all of my needs but also it's okay that we sometimes drift into that because how could we not so how um there are so many aspects that that i still want to uh talk about here with you i know that we're we're getting close to to time but before we we wrap up has your relation how has your relationship changed with your art since you wrote the captive muse well the captive muse came out 20 years ago so there's <laughs> probably a lot i i could say about that um i have more fun with it mm. i'm more well, let me interject something. One of my teachers said something extremely interesting to me, MFA teachers. He said, if you don't, if you're not wanting to make great art, why bother? Mm. But you have to be able to accept where you fall short. And it may be very short. You may never achieve what you set out to do. And most people don't. And so I think for me, I have come to be on better terms with that notion. I want the work to be wonderful. I want it to move people. And I've increasingly come to terms with the fact that though it improves, I don't reach what it is that I'd hope to. There are better poets, lots of them, including good friends of mine. But I see the work improving. I see it surprising me, which is, to me, very exciting. When, when something goes off in a direction that I hadn't anticipated and I'm not holding on to control it too much, I, it's just fun. And it's interesting. And so I think my relationship has changed in part and through my own analysis in other ways, so that I enjoy it more. Now, I'm also retired and I have more time for it, which is nice. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's it's gotten, it's gotten, I, I, I don't know if I want to say easier, but in some ways it's gotten easier. I don't beat myself up about it. I have a much better relationship with that voice. You know, I can 
be rude to it. Um, and my relationship with my muse is a little bit less fraught. Mm. And, and I think the muse is really an interesting thing in people's minds. I think there is something, it's a relationship we have with this either inner figure, internal figure, or this fantasy of that which inspires us. I, I probably shouldn't have started on that because that's a whole different direction, but an interesting one. Yeah. I mean, tell me more about it. Um, it that Yeah, it sounds, I want to keep exploring. Well, I've asked a few friends, do you have a muse? And yeah. And I said, what male, female, what's your muse like? And people have talked about it as if they're talking about a cousin or an aunt, or even though they realize this is in their heads, their head. Um, it can be a very inspiring, nurturing figure. You know, that you, you almost can summon or it shows up and you're grateful that it's there. But it can also have characteristics, of course, of important people in our history. So that if we feel like the muse is going to just abandon me if I write this kind of thing or if I don't write regularly, you know, then it's a relationship that is, um, I, th I think, very interesting. And a lot of writers, they feel like they have a muse. As like a source of, of their creative um, potential, and, and I hesitate to use the words energy, but maybe inspiration? Inspiration, yeah. It's like the, the idea is this, you have a sense of this entity when something's happening that, could very well trigger some good piece of writing. Mm. But it also has some of these fraught elements. Like mine was going to leave if I didn't show devotion. So if I didn't write for a while, you know, if I was caught up in other things, I could feel that I was being abandoned. I was being punished for not being a more devoted writer. Yes. Uh, or the muse was going to leave forever. You know, it could feel like this This was never... A lot of writers have talked about how I I feel... They've said things like, I feel like I'll never write again. Oh, man. And they feel, you know, pretty periodically. And one of the ways that things have changed for me is I don't think it's going to disappear. How reassuring that must be. It's reassuring when I really believe it. Yeah, but it sounds like maybe that's not all the time, but maybe more of the time than not. More of the time. I, in other words, I know it's not that I'm assuming inspiration will arrive. I'm assuming I will sit down mm. and write. And if what I'm writing is bad as it you know, can certainly be, I'll keep going and I'll get to something. And it may never be as good as I'd like, but it's better than it was, and it interests me. That's that's beautiful. You always have the capacity to to sit down and write, no matter what. It doesn't mean I'm going to sit down and write something good. Yeah. But I no longer feel like I will never write another poem. 
I no longer feel like, you know, it's gone. It's left me. I have nothing to say. All those things that, that we feel. I know that if I sit down and like do those morning pages I mentioned earlier, something will happen. Something will come up that will interest me and that will begin something. And so that is a way of saying, I trust my unconscious is not going to empty. Mm. I trust there's, there's material there. And that if I sit down and write, instead of doing what I did for 14 years, which was not sit down and write, but think I had writer's block, it, it'll, something will come. That feels like a kind of liberation because that the the sense of safety and um, I mean the opposite of this is the danger signal right that we were talking right. about earlier. This feels like a safety signal, right? And there's there's there is a separation between the action of sitting down to write and the judgment of what it. Uh, of how you feel about the aesthetic that has emerged. But yeah. it sounds like you've arrived at a point where the emer paying tribute to the aspect of emerging and to the muse is more important to you in some respects than the final product. Yeah. And it's not that I'm indifferent to the final product, but I trust the process the way I came to trust the process of revision. Now, I don't mean, you know, everything's smooth sailing. We may get off the, <laughs> the internet and the next time I sit down to write, I may draw blank, but I, I know what I need to do. I know that I just need to start doing something and, and something will come, some idea, some image, the kinds of things that start poems for me. And I think this is something that it's very helpful for people to come to trust, and they won't come to trust it unless they work steadily over time. Yeah, it feels very cultivated and intentional, and it's not, uh, I mean, you have to, I, I, I have glimpses of, of what you're describing, but probably not fully there, but you have to show to yourself at some level that it's, that it is safe to create unconditionally for the sake of creating and paying tribute to the muse uh, and whatever source of inspiration for me, I think if I have a muse, I think it's, it's just me as a child because he had such an innate capacity to create before he started to judge what he was creating and that yeah. that really limited uh, his natural joy and, and inclination. So um, thank you for, for, explaining that uh, as it pertains to you, it's given me a very helpful way of, of every time I want to sit down, I want to make something for, for that guy, you know, cause he's, he was just finger painting cause he wanted to finger paint, not cause he wanted to make a, a beautiful constellation uh, like Da Vinci of, uh, you know, I don't know if Da Vinci made the last supper, but he didn't want to make something that went in a museum. He just wanted to make something that made him feel good and get his hands, get blue, red, purple, yellow, green on his hands so that he could make something fun. Um, so I know we're coming up on time. So the, the final question that, that I'll ask you is um, to somebody who has listened to this, to this interview. And obviously we will um, link 
more to your website and to your book so that people can can find that. If they are just undertaking um, and starting to get more awareness into maybe the unconscious uh, and the stories that have been influencing them um, underneath their level of awareness, mm-hmm. if they're just starting this, what words would you give them to uh, to give them a starting point to undertake that journey? I would say set aside, if you haven't, some time that is just for this mm. and stick with it. Treat it as your work, even if it's, you know, only part of your work. And, if, you know, if people say, let's go out, well, it's not happening right now, but someday we hope it is again. You, you know, you want to have lunch or you want to, I work that time. That's my working time. And stay with it. It also helps, I mean, and keep going and see what happens. And it helps to get teachers if, you know, you're open to that. Uh, it helps to have artist and writer friends with whom you can talk about these things because otherwise it can be very, very lonely. And also sort of think about creating a dialogue with any voice that interferes. I'm talking about in your head. You may want to do that in your life too. Mm. And people have also said, stay away from people who uh, belittle your art. Mm. They, they don't need to be in your life. Um, or if they absolutely do, protect this part of yourself from them. But I, for me, the, the change came when I set aside a block of, I had four hours. I had childcare. I had an office to go to. And that really made a big difference. Fantastic. Try to talk to yourself about this because before you try to talk to yourself about this, it's just a fact in your head. It's a fact that you're not, you're no good or your work's no good or you'll never this and that. As soon as you start to think about it and talk about it with yourself and wonder where it comes from, it starts to become something you can, you have some room to explore, but you don't when it's just a fact in your head. Does that That's, make sense? Yeah, that sounds like agency. Yeah, it is agency. But it's also, um, we can't think about things until we can find a way to express them. Mm. That gives us a little distance. Like, you know how when you talk about something with somebody, it becomes easier to think about it? Like right now? Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so, Try to do that. That's why friends in the arts, and teachers, those those help. But also have conversations with yourself. Awesome. Well, that there, I think there's so much there that anyone who's listening will appreciate. I know I very much appreciated this. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for writing the book. And I'm looking forward to future conversations with you. Um, this was so much fun. Thank you, Susan. It was for me too. Thanks. That was so much fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
You can find links to Susan's books in the show notes and on her website, susankolodny.com. You can also get in touch with Susan through the contact form on her website. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get access to new episodes, subscribe in whatever podcast app you're currently listening. If you'd like to help us get the word out, rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts really helps people find it. You can reach me on Instagram at jesse.sussman and sign up for my newsletter at jessesussman.studio forward slash newsletter. Thanks again for listening, and I'm looking forward to sharing the next episode with you soon. Take care.